Hey, buddies, fellow Franco fans, welcome once again to the Franco Observer Podcast. I am your host, Jason Rudy from Desperate Visions Productions. And uh, this episode's coming out in the month of January of the year 2022, which means at the time of this uh, being released, I am back on shooting um, some pickup shots, uh, exterior location stuff, and uh, working on the editing again of the next two films coming out in the year of the Double Deuce 2022, um, Lady Hyde and uh, Emmanuel in Sin City. But this being a Franco Observer podcast, I'm going to jump over to the man himself, Jess Franco, and uh, on this episode, um, episode 70, we are discussing film number five, and really the one that put him on the radar of everybody, and uh, his first, uh, this is like his Citizen Kane, or like his, uh, you know, uh, Reservoir Dogs, even though it's not his first film or anything, but the one that got him noticed, The Awful Dr. Orloff, um, known as to us here in America. Um, and this is a big one, so this has quite a bit written about it, and once again, uh, like I always give credit, this is all uh, information taken from uh, Murderous Passions, the book, The Delirious Cinema of Jesus Franco, Volume 1, by Stephen Thrower with Julien Grangier. All right, uh, so this is the awful Dr. Orloff, country of origin, Spain, USA, and in parentheses, in France, 1961. Um, original theatrical title in country of origin uh, in Spain is called Screams in the Night, Gritos en la Noche. In France, the theatrical title is Le Horrible Dr. Orloff, 1F. Uh, also, yeah, this is also just 1F for Orloff. Not two, as we've seen in other films. Uh, let's see. Um, alternative titles. Le Horrible, Dr. Orloff, France. Uh, UK is uh, The Demon Doctor. Italian is uh, Il Del Balco, Dr. Satana. Uh, let's see what else we have. Mexican theatrical title, El Dr. Demonio. Uh, Argentina, El Horrible, Dr. Orloff. And UK video, Diabolical, Dr. Satan. In Portuguese DVD, it's uh, O Terrivel, Dr. Orloff. And uh, BBC admission sheet, just Dr. Orloff and the horrible Dr. Orloff. Production companies, uh, Madrid is Hispammer Films. And uh, let's see here. Uh, Paris, Yedia, uh, Yosin. And USA, Plaza Films International. All right. Let's see here. Uh, theatrical distributors, Delta Films out of Madrid. Uh, Marcel is uh, DCF Paris. I'm sorry, DCF is Paris. Uh, Euro Proteus is Marcel. Uh, Grand National Pictures Limited out of London. Sigma 3 Corp out of California. And World Il World Entertainment Corps uh, USA when it had a 1968 re-release seven years later. Or six years later. Uh, timeline shooting date, October, November, 1961. Classified for Spanish release, February 13th of 62. And uh, played Barcelona premiere of March 9th of 62. Played Madrid, May 14th, premiered in 62. Played France in October 1st of 1962. Played Seville, November 30th, 62. Then um, in 63, it played Italy, Rome. Uh, August 10th of 63, and UK um, premiered November 12th of 63, and finally US premiere in Baltimore, Maryland, uh, October 7th, 1964. So yeah, about, uh, shit, two and a half years after its premiere. It's crazy. All right, uh, theatrical running time, Spain, 93 minutes, France version, 88 minutes, UK cut, 86 minutes, 8 seconds, and finally the USA cut is 90 minutes. Cast on this, I'm not going to go through everybody because it's quite a big cast, probably like double the amount for a Franco film or triple. Uh, let's hit you some of the leads and then a few other little spots. Um, Conrado San Martin is in it, is the lead, and plays Inspector Edgar Tanner. Diana Loris as uh, Wanda Bronski slash Melissa Orloff, two roles. The mighty Howard Vernon. 
making his debut in Franco Films. Same with Diana Lorries, those are two that would come back many times. But Howard Vernon was the grandfather man, so uh, and he plays the course aforementioned Doctor Orloff. Ricardo Valle plays Morpho Lautner. Morpho is an important character, not the actor, but the character that does appear further in the Franco universe. Uh, Maria Silva plays Danny, a cabaret dancer. Mario Lasso plays Irma Gold. Um, let's see here. Who else I want to pick? Uh, Ravier de Rivera plays M. Hogan, antique dealer. Um, let's see who else I want to pull. Uh, Placido Sequeris, Orloff and Danny's carriage driver. And let me scroll down finally to the last one mentioned, uncredited. Jess Franco plays the bar pianist. So, all right, uh, credits, uh, director Jess Franco, screenplay and dialogue, Jess Franco, based on an original story by David Kuhn, K-H-U-N-E. Hmm, I wonder who that could be. <clears throat> director of photography, Godo Pacheco, uh, editor, Afonso Santacana, and art director, Antonio Samuat, background music and musical direction, Jose Pagan, Antonio Ramirez, Angel, um, Sergio Newman, camera operator Javier Perez-Zoflio, camera assistant Isidro Muro, uh, still photographer Daniel Ortiz. So, yeah, we don't have the um, Vernon doing set photography yet. Um, let's see here. Felix Mickelson is assistant art director, property, okay. Make, uh, makeup, Adolfo Ponte. Um, okay, so yeah, we're going to skip through that. Produce, okay. All right, production notes on this. Um, the first horror movie made in Spain, A Monster Who Killed Five Alluring Women. Original Admat text for Gritos en la Noche. Nosferatu, Dracula, Dr. Mabuse. All the nightmares of cinema now manifested in a breathtaking and amazing film. Spanish Admat for Gritos en la Noche, March 8, 1962. Production notes. La Reina de Tabarin and Vampiresa's 1930 established Franco as a commercial force in Spanish cinema. Although the films were too periocal to make much of an impact abroad, what he needed was a subject that would allow him to stretch his creative wings and expand his repertoire, something more sensational and challenging than the pretty melodies and nostalgic sentiment of the musicals. What he really needed was to embrace was politics. With Vampiresa's 1930 on release, Franco met with Marius Lesur of Eurocene and Sergio Newman of Hispammer to discuss a new project called La Clacudosus, The Hanging Man, based on a book by Bruno Tavern, the anti-capitalist anarchist author of The Treasure of Sierra Madre. Also known as The Rebellion of the Hanged, it concerned a revolt by oppressed workers in the mahogany plantations of Mexico at the height of the rainy season. In September 1961, Variety reported that Jose Suarez and Diana Loris had signed up for a film to be directed by Jess Franco called La Vengadores. In all likelihood, the planned adaptation of Los Colocados in its, as it sits precisely within the time frame. With this ambitious project in mind, Franco and Sergio Newman began pre-production and arranged a meeting with the Spanish censor board, a necessity in the 1960s. Franco explained what happened next to Alex Mendeville. The ministry didn't say no at first. They just treated me paternalistically like I was a dumb kid. Are you really willing to get yourself into this mess? Shit like that. But in the end, it was approved. I had the French and Spanish co-producers, a cast already assembled. Everything seemed to be on the right track. Then, a few days before the scheduled start of shooting, I received an official notification telling me, in general terms, to stick the movie up my arse. The powers that be decided to forbid it. Panic ensued. Actors were under contract. Money was being squandered. The situation looked bleak. One evening, to unwind for an hour or two, Franco, Newman, and Lesueur decided to go to a cinema to see the Hammer film The Brides of Dracula, 1960. Accounts vary as to what happened next. Carlos Aguiar reports that, as the gothic ghoulishness played on screen, Lesueur and Newman asked Franco if he would like to make a horror film, saying, since we have trouble with censorship, 
why don't we do something like this? Something this way. Franco jumped at the idea and dashed off a script at high speed. To Alex Mendebull, Franco put a different spin on the tale. Out of sheer anger, I decided to make another movie right away. One that wouldn't bother with those sons of bitches. A vampire flick? As I told the producers, I took them along to see The Brides of Dracula. They loved it, and that's how I made Gritos el Noche. While precise production dates are hard to ascertain, it seems that the film went back in before the cameras in the late autumn and early winter of 1961. Franco's visit to see The Brides of Dracula took place after the premiere of Vampiresa's 1930 in the last week of September 61. So, bearing in mind the panic over the stalled production of Los Coláticos, a filming must have been underway in October or November at the latest. You can tell the shoot took place in bitterly cold weather by the plumes of breath rising from the actors' mouths during outdoor scenes. To everyone's relief, the audience response to Gritos en la Noche was astounding. Honestly, I expected it to be a fiasco, Franco admitted. But then I had a worldwide hit. It was from that moment on that everyone wanted to make a horror movies with me. Gritos en la Noche opened first in Barcelona on March 9th of 62 and gained considerable attention in the press with even the hugely successful Barcelona football team reportedly trooping off to see it before an important match in the 1962 European Cup. All right, review by Stephen Thrower. This is where the Franco story really begins, the story of a deranged turn-of-the-century surgeon trying to repair the ravaged face of his daughter by using unwilling female tissue donors kidnapped from bars and nightclubs. Gritos Elenocha, better known to the English-speaking world as the awful Dr. Orloff, may, took, may look a trifle tame today, three T's, but it was a bona fide shocker in 1962, photographed in bravo, black and white, with an instinctive flair to the cultivation of fear. It has a confidence and panache that leaps from the screen and announces the arrival of a major new talent. The awful Dr. Orloff was the first Franco film, three more F's, first Franco film, um, that's funny, he has three F's and three, uh, to make an impact outside of Spain and France, and the first in a long line of extraordinary works in which sadism and eroticism combined. Technically, it's a beautifully shot, reasonably acted tale which plays out a pulp ghoulish narrative with considerable elan. Symbolically, it's the wellspring from which many a dark and delicious tributary would spring over the next 40 years of Franco's cinema. It's by no means his best film, but it lights the torch that illuminates the rest of his journey, from the cool prowess of his early work to the furthest video shores of his 21st century output. Anyone with even the slightest interest in Jess Franco needs to see the awful Dr. Orloff, because it introduces many of the themes and characteristics that would animate his entire career. Though it cannot deliver the explicit transgressions of the later work, it does show how successfully or how succinctly and skillfully Franco could balance technical rigour with the flower of his own morbid obsessions. The story has two main strands. One of them concerns the twisted going ons Shay Doctor Orloff. Note the single letter F in the name, which is doubled in all subsequent appearances. While the other features the faintly Hitchcockian pairing of an investigating cop and his spunky ballerina girlfriend. Horror fans may groan at the notion of the latter, fearing that at any time spent with cops and their amateur sleuth girlfriends is bound to be a bore, but rest assured the scenes with the two lovers are quite brief and do actually have some charm. Besides, Hitchcock himself would surely have approved of a high-class ballerina played by gorgeous Diana Loris, brunette, but you can't have everything going, undercover as a self-declared shameless hussy to flush out a maniac. Wanda's change of appearance from lead character in a posh production of Faust to seductive Lady of the Night, Tania, is particularly eye-catching. Her hooker's dress is a risky... is a risk risque delight, cupping her bosoms in a heart-shaped corsage, with braided ribbons attaching one breast to the other, nipple to nipple. <laughs> Love, portrayed, and sadomasochism in one piece of costume. 
The story progresses with smooth, stylish ease, with none of the drastic elysian that marks Franco's later work. It's a fully functioning horror story in the traditional sense, with suspense and sudden frights as well as atmosphere. The opening appetizer, in which Orloff's deformed servant Morpho leaps from a woman's bedroom closet, sets up the shock element, while creepiness and suspense predominate during Orloff's seduction of a tipsy nightclub singer, supposedly taking her back to his abode for more champagne, my dear. Orloff instead leads the unsuspecting woman to a shadowy tree-wreathed townhouse. In her wine-sodden state, she fails to notice the mansion is abandoned, with a for-sale sign carelessly thrown in the long grass. What follows is an object lesson in ringing maximum atmosphere from a great location. Strange music and shadowy light reign supreme as the drunken victim finds herself locked in the empty house before being savaged by the monstrous Morpho. Much of the film's overtly horrific charge comes from Morpho's grotesque appearance. He's corpse-like, pale and waxy, staggering down the stairs with his feet twisting awkwardly as though walking on broken ankles. He's reminiscent, too, of an automaton or mannequin with slightly with sightless eyes goggling from their sockets like the orbs of some nightmarish broken doll. His face twitches and puckers at the lips as he seeks out victims, suspecting in a faintly repulsive way the blind, questing movements of slugs and snails. Such scary-faced monsters are considered tame today, but Morpho couldn't or must have generated a veritable symphony of screams from audiences in the early 1960s. The warm relationship between the romantic leads filmed in daylight much of the time provides startling contrast to the main spirit manipulative life of the night-dwelling villains. Orloff exploits the brain-damaged Morpho for his murderous strengths, snapping at him impatiently and beating him like a dog, and preys upon man's maidservant Arnett's sense of obligation, dragging her into the cruel schemes. Oh, and least we forget... He callously butchers young women. I'm fascinated by your skin. It's perfect, so soft and fresh, he purrs to an unsuspecting donor. He commits his crimes to restore the beauty of the only person he cares about, his daughter Melissa. Orloff is thus the first of Franco's protagonist villains, whose wickedness is shaded by a strange ambiguity, a capacity for endless love and devotion. This love is scrutinized and found wanting. wanting. However, as Franco draws out from it the hidden truth, egotism, and the desire to control, it's significant that we never hear a word from Melissa herself, emphasizing that Orloff's is a selfish love. One suspects that his desire to mend his daughter's damaged face has roots in incestuous longings, the intensity of which is supplemented in his perverted surgery procedures. With his discord between tenderness and cruelty, Orloff is not unlike those concentration camp doctors who, having inflicted unbearable misery, returned home and settled back into the comforts of family life. How could one remain so pure when it goes hand in hand with such evil? Orloff's unflagging devotion and tenderness is rendered implicitly perverse by proximity to his cruelty. Numerous small pleasures add luster to the film. Orloff's dark romantic castle broods among the populars like the Arnold Walkland paintings sprung to life. Near-constant rain creates a cold, uncomfortable physically, or physicality and helps to depopulate the streets through which Orloff and Morpho track their victims. At Orloff's castle, the heroine reigns, regains consciousness and gazes in horror at a portrait which appears to depict her own features. It's actually a portrait of Melissa. Franco adds a reverberant extra shock here. As Wanda flinches from the portrait, she gazes directly at the camera and reacts with terror. For a second, it's as she perceived the very audience. Until Franco cuts to a shot of her gazing at a reflection, a full-length mirror. But is it just reflection? Wanda's reflected gaze is trained not on her own eyes, as one should be by the case, but directly at the camera. The actress is staring at us through the mirrors. Perhaps coincidental, the moment nevertheless unfolds a modernistic acknowledgement of our voyeuristic pleasures in watching a frightened woman. Such breaking of the fourth wall is a technique that Franco would revisit many times in years to come. Uh, prior to, you know, like uh, Midnight Party and all that. Uh, prior to the awful Dr. Orloff, uh, Spanish cinema dallied little with the macabre La Torre de la 
Jarabas, Tower of the Seven Hunchbacks, directed in 1944 by Edgar Novell. The Madrid Count of Duero can probably claim to be the first genuine Spanish horror film, although occasional horror motifs cropped up in other places, mostly in comedies. Uh, however, no one in Spain had yet thought to combine the gothic trappings of the universal horror films, the Germanic stylings of expressionistic cinema, and the burgeoning eroticism of the Hammer films. While all these elements came ready-made, they were subtly mutated as they passed through the prism of Franco's sensibility. His innovation was to wed horror elements to a whiff of voyeuristic eroticism. Orloff hunts women in order to steal their beauty for his macabre experiments and spends his evenings lurking in the shadows of drinking dens and nightclubs, casting a chilly gaze over the buxom dancers and sexy singers. His predatory disposition is mimicked by the camera, which peers at the victims-to-be with similarly calculating eyes, which is not to say that its first incarnation, uh, Gritos de la Noche, the film was a riot of dangerous eroticism. Only in 1964, for the French re-release, the horrible Dr. Orloff would certain scenes be replaced with racier imagery. In its original form, the film is colder. What distinguishes Gritos today is not as groundbreaking erotic explicitness, but rather the director's tangled mesh of influences, revealing a voracious, thoroughly modern appreciation of both high and low culture. As the 1960s progressed, this would become positively de rigueur and mainstream artistic discourse, so Franco was a couple of years ahead. His tastes ranged from Fritz Lang to Sax Romer, Carl Dreyer to H.P. Lovecraft, Orson Welles to Edgar Wallace. Comic books, pulp literature, trashy noirs cheap horror films all were shuffled together in his imagination with the more established masterpieces of cinema. Gritos de la Noche enshrines Franco's magpie sensibility and his willingness to pursue sensation through the f- filaments connecting beauty and horror, a carefully composed, elegantly directed film that nevertheless deals in quivering females and morbid mutations. And finally, The Awful Dr. Orloff is a film you can safely show to any fan of classic horror, even if they dislike the later films of Jess Franco. It's slick, creepy, and often quite beautiful to look at. Franco himself tended to express boredom with the film, regarding it as too early and primitive, an example of his work to withstand much scrutiny today. That's understandable. He achieved so much afterward, but... Don't let his in you put you off. If you want to understand Franco's Ovur, this is a great place to begin your investigations. All right. Cast and crew to play Dr. Orloff, personifying regal elegance and cold malice in one handsome old European package, Franco cast Swiss-born Howard Vernon. The two men became firm friends, and Vernon embarked on a creative journey through some of the most hellish and extraordinary realms of the Franco filmography, essaying over 30 screen roles, ranging from icy grandeur to leering insanity. Vernon was recommended to Franco by Marius Lesseur. However, Franco was already familiar with the actor's work, having supervised the Spanish dubbing of two of his earlier films, one which was um, Le Monde Vertigris, Bernard Bourdelli, 1953, um, and the first outing of Eddie Constantine's Private Eye, Let Me Caution, Franco had also admired Vernon in uh, Le Silence de la Mire and Fritz Lang's Thousand Eyes of Dr. Mabuse and saw in his aristocratic air and penetrating eyes the hauteur needed to play the charming but cruel Dr. Orloff. Conrad San Marcos, who plays Inspector Tanner, another name he's later, was an amateur boxer from Spain who first caught the acting bug after working as an extra on the set of the Western Oroville. A veteran of more than 50 films prior to Orloff, he would appear in one further Franco project, the Nueva Selva and Blues. Death Whistles of Blues. Uh, Spanish comic artist and writer Manuel Villagalego uh, had a cameo on the police sketch artist who draws portraits of Orloff and Morpho based on a description of witnesses. The film's immensely talented director of photography, Godofredo Pacheco, shot Franco's early short, El Orbo de Hispano. They met. Okay. okay, Franco on screen. Franco cameos in Gritos de la Noche as a piano player singing along with heroic vagrant Jeannot in a barroom scene to regrettably cut from the French version. Uh, music. Franco's fearless taste in experimental music comes to the fore here, foray here, with a clattering, scraping, nightmare soundscape from the furthest shores of the European avant-garde, although one suspects that Franco himself may have been largely responsible. The credited composers are Antonio Ramirez Angel, 
and his longtime friend and collaborator Jose Pagan. The two had worked together frequently since the early 50s, providing the score for many films. Um, the mayhem of the awful Dr. Orloff, however, is in a league of its own. Um, do, 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 do. Okay, raise that. Great, great. Locations. Cool. Uh, the precise location of the story is a little obscure, but for a for sale sign we see is in French. The nightclub where Orloff picks up some of his victims is called Evu Combalia, the old dove coat. And the newspaper that publishes unkind comics about Inspector Tanner is Le Figaro. So Franco, it would seem, so France, it would seem to be. However, some of the action takes place in a town called Hartog. There is actually no such place, although the word sounds Germanic. The architecture is also difficult to pin down. The film was shot in Madrid, but there's something a little Slavic about certain exteriors, all of which help to suggest a pan-European netherworld, some tiny obscure country tucked in between the well-known European giants. Uh, UK release. The film was released in the UK by Grand National Pictures as The Demon Doctor, and received an X certificate on November 12th, 63. Connections. All right. Well, uh, it sets in motion Franco's long and tempestuous journey into horror erotica. The Octodorker Orloff cannot be described as an original in any sense. The surgical motif is grafted wholesale, although allegedly unconsciously, from Georges Franco's masterpiece, Les Le Vieux Sans Visage. More on that in a moment. The relationship between Orloff and Morpho is lopped from Universal Frankenstein films. Even the dread name of Dr. Orloff is a steal, cribbed from The Dark Eyes of London, an Edgar Wallace adaptation in which Bela Lugosi plays the evil Dr. Fedor Orloff, two Fs. While the title The Gringos y la Noche had already been used for the Spanish reliefs of Wanted for Murder, um... Wonder for Murder echoed the Jack the Ripper case, as does Alfred Dorloff. For a long time, it was mooted, and the Ripper who took such brutal tell on women. Uh, sorry. Okay. Wonder for Murder echoed the Jack the Ripper case, and so does the author Doctor Orloff. For a long time, it was a it was mooted that the Ripper who took such a brutal toll on women was by day a wealthy gentleman doctor, a theory that Franco later used directly in his 1976 Jack the Ripper recycling many of the narrative elements of Dr. Orloff in the process. Yeah, I've mentioned that before on one of the um, earlier uh, episodes we did on uh, Jack the Ripper, that, yeah, it's basically a uh, remake of the Dr. Orloff, if you watch in that sense. Even the ballerina and the inspector and some of the same characters and everything. Uh, his morpho is a woman in that one, but it's very, very, very similar. Um the case of Jack the Ripper influenced another key movie in the Octor Dr. Orloff's Montreal DNA, The Lodger, 1944. Um, okay, he's kind of going over a bunch of stuff here. Um, finally, no exploitation of the roots of Franco's horror debut would be complete without reference to the way in which Orloff, tapping his cane to glide the blind morpho that this way and that, echoes Caligari and his relationship with Cesar, the Sambolist in Caligari, 1920. Uh, Franco brings together this body snatcher's shopping list with shameless zeal, parading the same magpie sensibility he displayed in Vampires' 1930 while demonstrating the time he had the necessary creativity to fuse the components. The ballet opera in which Wanda performs is, according to poster seen outside the venue, Faust, with dance choreography by Deglehoff. However, uh, Mayor Byer never wrote an opera based on Faust, nor did he work with... Okay, but there... Okay, it also marks his taste for in-jokes. The poster for the production of Faust is headed La Grande Compagnie M. Lassur Joviera, a note to director's new friend, producer, and Eurocene head Marius Lassur. Contemporary Spanish reviewers saw in the film's parallels with a Spanish murder from the 1870s known as the Sketamanga, who attacked and disemboweled prostitutes. The word Sketamancas has been around since medieval times, meaning essentially the boogeyman. When finally apprehended, the killer was found to be a peasant farmer from Avala called Garreo Diaz, who, according to accounts at the time, an astronomical face of distinctly Neanderthal appearance. It was perhaps the deformed appearance in connection with the tax on the loose women that led reviewers to associate Morpho with the Scaramanticus. Polly Patterson, the victim in the opening scene, is also the name of a nightclub singer murdered by Count Marian in Tenemos Etineos. Okay, you might think that George 
a Jose Frano's 1960 masterpiece of Sons of Visage, about a surgeon murdering women and stealing their faces to repair the burned features of his daughter is an obvious influence on the author, Dr. Orloff. And yet, oddly, although Franco was rare, rarely shy about admitting his influences, he maintained that the Frangeau film was not an inspiration, telling Emrecord magazine that both films were shot at the same time. It wasn't possible for me to copy him or for him to copy me. I shot in Spain, and he shot in Paris. It may be that the story was in the air, as often happens in literature and music, too. There are ideas circulating. Frangeau and I discussed this and came to the conclusion that it wasn't possible that we copied each other. Without wishing to labor the point, the facts are these. La Sons of Visage was released in France in January 1960, and first played in Paris, then that March. Certainly there was no possibility of Frangeau copying Franco. Les Sons of Visage opened in Madrid in September 63 and Barcelona in October 63. So it is possible that Franco simply didn't see the film until after his own was made. It seems a little odd, however, that Franco, an avowed horror fan who visited Paris frequently, managed to miss this controversial picture which caused a sensation with France cinema-goers on its release. But then, why Dinah deny the connection? Franco has always been unguarded about such matters and loves to make references to personal favorites in his work. If a story about taking the sewer and Newman to see The Brides of Dracula had instead referred to Lassonde's Visage, I doubt that anyone would bat an eyelid. A cynic might say that Franco was reluctant to admit the influence because the borrowings from Lassonde's Visage are close to plagiarism. But in fact, the films have sufficient differences of style, tone, and content to make such accusations invalid. All right, almost finishing up here. We got just other versions, and that's about it. All right, other versions. There are two different versions of the film. The original Spanish cut, Gritos El Noche, and the spiced-up French cut, La Horrible Dr. Orloff. It's the latter which has most often made its way onto video and DVD as the awful Dr. Orloff. A third alleged variant from Italy was unavailable for review. Although tamed by comparison with later Franco films, the brief moments of titillation added to the French cut are pretty striking for the time. One addition occurs during the sequence in which Orloff operates on Irma. The original of the scene ends with Orloff's scalpel approaching the unconscious Irma's face. In the French version, he pulls open her blouse and glides the scalpel between her breast toward her throat, leaving a trail of blood. Quite what this has to do with treating Melissa's facial disfigurement is anyone's guess, but the shock and illicit eroticism is considerable. The second edition comes as Wanda explores the castle and finds a trussed-up female victim. Before she can set the woman free, she's attacked by Morpho, and in the struggle, the monster gets a good old handful of her exposed breasts. Again, the raciness is at the very edge of permissible for 1962. The English-language edition, released on DVD by Image Entertainment, is the French cut. The original Spanish release, Gritos de la Noche, is available on DVD from Divisa. It runs 93 minutes, 10 minutes longer than the French. Much of the extra material is dialogue, which the film can manage without. Um, there is one instance, though, where cuts to the French version create a glaring continuity error. Almost a minute has been removed from the opening sequence in which a drunken woman enters her room, undresses, and puts on her nightgown before discovering Morpho hiding in her wardrobe. So much is excised that the woman seems to change outfits as Morpho attacks her. Spanish version, she opens the cupboard, pulls out a nightdress, closes the cupboard, gets changed, then returns for a second garment, at which point Morpho attacks her. An Italian subversion, which played on Italy's Rai Trey TV station several years ago, is identical to the Spanish cut. The, original, the Italian theatrical cut, Idabolical Dr. Satana, features a completely different credit sequence composed of a montage of stills set to the most extraordinary carcophy of the soundtrack. Uh, Frank was credited on this print as Walter Alexander. The film was edited down and released as four individually titled st standard eight film shorts by Mountain Movies in the UK. They were Demon Doctor, Lust for Blood, The Body Snatchers, and The Woman in the Coffin, and retailed for 3.50 pounds each. Uh, okay, problematic build actor Tito Garcia is not visible in available prints, and Antonio Ramos is listed twice in the opening cast list. All right, well, there's a lot of information on that, but this is a very landmark film in the Franco universe, so, you know, there's going to be quite a bit talking about that. So, 
so yeah, also to do little plugs here, um, if you want to get a hold of us, you can email us at francoobserver at yahoo.com. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram under uh, the Franco Observer Podcast. Uh, please download all the or download the episodes. Uh, please subscribe, of course. Please share the uh, episodes. Please tell your friends about the Franco Observer Podcast. Help spread the word. Um, we're kind of at a standard point right now. Uh, we got all the tried and true fans that listen every week, and I appreciate that. Uh, our numbers are kind of starting to wane a little bit on the holiday season, so let's try to uh, get the word out there and spread the word of Franco because as we record this, I just learned today that uh, The Other Side of the Mirror is going to be released in 2022 through Mondo Macabro uh, Blu-ray, and uh, it's only the Spanish cut, though, not the French cut or the X-rated cut, so it's a little bit of a drag on that, but uh, Spanish cuts preferred, especially if it's the longer one with all the extra um, music added in and the scenes of them going out on the town and that, because uh, it's a really good film, and that's during Franco's insightful period that I like a lot, um, after the death of Soledad and before um, Lena Romay, uh, kind of around that time, so it's, it's, it's a really good period where he's kind of being like an intellectual filmmaker and doing some cool, like, John Cassavetes type stuff, so... Yeah, that 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 phase of him, I dig a lot. The Virgin Among Living Dead, and all the way through that, well, his like kind of death trip phase. So, uh, and life and everything. So it's a really really good phase of his. So, and you can check those out on earlier episodes we did. Uh, let's see, other side of the mirror we did like uh, on way back on uh, episode twenty, the other side of the mirror. Collie did that one with me. So, I uh, hope she's doing well. Yeah, if she's listening. Get a hold of me, and let's do some more episodes. So, uh, all right. Uh, let's see. We did the plugs, did the subscription. Uh, oh yeah, also to the donation button. If you like the show and you want to throw a few bucks my way, be much appreciated. Uh, that's options always there for you whenever you want it. And uh, let's see. Yeah, tell your friends, download all the episodes, subscribe, all that good stuff. So, all right. Well, hang on through the break and listen to our review of the Octor. Oh God, I keep saying awful wrong. The awful. Dr. Orloff. Arrivederci. All right, this is Jason back with you. Um, going to do this one solo in um, lieu of time because uh had a uh, situation with the guest, so I wanted to make sure this was done in time and posted uh so I can stay on schedule. Um, but yeah, uh, Greta will return on a future episode very, very soon. Uh, so yeah, uh, watched the awful Dr. Orloff, um, on, this was film number five from Jess Franco and really the one that pushed him out into everybody's, um, stratosphere of what he can do. And, uh, this was like, you know, his reservoir dogs or whatever, you know, um, not one. I mean, that was Tarantino's first film, but with this, it was just like this was the one that made everybody um, stay notice. And this is like his, you know, first big film. So, all right. So I'm going to read the um, synopsis of this and give you my review of it, and we'll go over the Franco uh, checklist and uh, all that good stuff that we do every episode. All right. Uh, synopsis. France, 1912. Dr. Orloff, assisted by his blind, disfigured servant Morpho Lautner, abducts young women by night and takes them to his castle. After Morpho has murdered them, Orloff experiments on their corpses, searching for a means to surgically repair the burned features of his beloved daughter, Melissa. He is assisted in his experiments by Arne, A-R-N-E, a woman indebted to Orloff because he'd help her, because he helped her, because he had helped her to escape from prison where she had been incarcerated for a crime of passion. Morpho, a multiple murderer who secretly loves Arne, also owes his liberty to Orloff, who rescued him from jail using a faked death certificate. As the toll of missing persons rises to five, Inspector Tanner is put on the case. His beautiful ballerina fiancée, Wanda Bronski, 
takes an amateur interest to a police sketch artist working from eyewitness reports establishes that there are two separate men involved in the disappearances. A necklace dropped from the body of one victim is found by Jeannot, a vagrant alcoholic who tries to sell it, drawing suspicion upon himself. Having established that Jeannot is not the killer, Tanner begins to take an interest in the man's suspicions about a boat shed on the edge of town and an ominous castle upstream from where the necklace was found. Meanwhile, Orloff and Morpho abduct another woman, this time keeping her alive to facilitate grafts from living tissue. Arne finally snaps at this cruelty and tries to alert the authorities. She is killed in a struggle with Orloff, who hides her body. Orloff sees Wanda in town one evening and, struck by her resemblance to Melissa, speaks briefly to her, raising her suspicions with his intense manner and burning eyes before fleeing into the night. Feeling sure that this is the man that they are looking for, Wanda decides to investigate the case herself going undercover as a high-class hooker called Tanya and hanging out in a bar where several of the victims were last seen. It's not long before she attracts the attention of Orloff, who invites her to join him for champagne. Wanda sees him adding something to her wine and avoids drinking it. Arranging for a note to be passed to the police, she pretends to be drugged and allows herself to be taken to Orloff's castle. However, Tanner doesn't read the note for several hours due to the high number of frivolous sightings from the public. In the nick of time, he heads for Orloff's castle. Morpho discovers Arn's corpse and kills Orloff. Wanda swoons in horror and Morpho carries her to the castle battlements where he is shot dead by Tanner. The lovers are reunited, and Tanner swears that from now on, they will act as a team. Alright, so that's the synopsis for the awful Dr. Orloff, and it's not awful at all. Um, a lot of things I liked about this film. Um, the cinematography is great. Uh, it's very... Um, Universal, you know, uh, it's got German expressionism. It's got the universal horror deal with it. It's got some hammer type stuff on it. Um, it's very, very cool with the way it's set up. Um, I liked the uh, title sequence. The lettering in the beginning is really cool. Um, I like the, the the style, of the lettering. Um, it's funny. It says story by David Kuhn, K H U N E. So that's an early um, um, fake name. Um, alias pseudonym or whatever for uh, Jess Franco so we see that established right there in his fifth film I think he did early in the earlier ones um, in the uh, some of the first four I'm not sure I'll have to go back and look and see but uh, yeah I think he did do it on one but so yes we this is his second or third time doing that um, let's see and uh, we have um, uh, I, watching this again for this is like my third time watching it now the first time reviewing it it's cool watching it uh I noticed that Howard Vernon uh, resembles Klaus Kinski in some of his early scenes where we first see uh, Orloff sitting there with his eyes and his hairstyle and his bone structure, his face and that. And uh, it's cool that uh, he had Kinski play basically Orloff later on in the Jack the Ripper film in the 70s, which was a thin remake of this. Uh, so that was pretty cool to see. That's really good casting. And those two are very similar. It's funny, I never caught that before. And it would be nice if... Um, there would a film where uh, Vernon would have played uh, Kinski's like father or, or uncle or something. That'd have been a good 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 team. Um, let's see what else I said. Uh, I saw uh, the cameraman's shadow uh, when the woman enters the horse carriage uh, early in the film. You see uh, that scene, um, the little goof there. Um, I liked the black coffin that we see pulled by uh, Orloff on horse with Morpho. It was a very stylized, cool black coffin. Uh, that's, of course, where the necklace falls in the water at the steps, which is another cool-looking sequence. 
the locations in this are great. Great exterior shots. You have the castle, the owls, the trees, all that. Uh, just like a boom, 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 boom. Really good editing. You see just all these touchstones of... It's a good film to watch for filmmakers. It's It's got all the all the shots you need to, to make a cool film, you know, with that style. Kind of like a Black Sunday a little bit, too. Um, but, yeah, it's, it establishes that type of location, um, which is really good. Uh, let's see. Um, oh, yeah, I noticed, too, um, there's a pond area where they go to. Uh, and it, I wonder if that was from um, uh, Robinson and... Uh, what was it? The Robinson and his slaves or whatever... Uh, Robinson on Crusoe Island and that one they did with um, Uta Barkin and Ann Liebert and Paul Mueller like uh, we did later on in the 70s. It, lo- it looked like that that same that same uh, location for that sequence. I'll have to go back and look at that. Um, which I had seen before mentioned that... Uh, um, oh, yeah, also, too, is similar locations in Jack the Ripper, too. There's a few little places that looks very similar. Um, and it's cool, too. I read other places that and heard that... Uh, Technically, this is the first Jess Franco prison film he did, not 99 Women, because in this it's established that Orloff worked at a prison, and those two A-R-N-E and R-N-A and, and uh, Morpho were prisoners there, and he got them out and stuff. So they have that prison backstory. We don't see it, but he just they, they talk about it. So technically, that's the first prison stuff we see in the Franco universe, but uh, that was pretty cool. Uh, let's see, uh, first nudity in this is, uh, around, uh, 49 minutes, four seconds, uh, which is, um, it's funny, there's a scene where he's, after he kidnapped a woman, he has her topless and her face is covered and he takes a scalpel and he, uh, kind of squeezes her boobs and he takes a scalpel and puts it between her boobs, which, uh, it's kind of an interesting place for, uh, you know, if you need surgical grafts of somebody's face is to cut between their boobs, so, I don't know. Maybe the uh, tissue there was he was looking for. Sorry, I just had a spill. Uh, let's see here. Uh, let's see. I said really good mirror shots. Um, I'll, I'll go over that when I hit the list. Um, one thing I liked is the. Oh, yeah, I'll go with that list too. Um, Jeannot was drunk. It's funny that he uh, helps the police. I thought that was kind of a cool character. Um, and, uh, oh, it's funny too. So the scene where they talk about how, um, the ballerina's boyfriend, um, Inspector Tanner doesn't really read the note until the very last thing. And it's funny. So it's when his, his girl, her fiance, uh, when Morpho, even though it's not her, it's a stunt double, but for the sake of the film, it's her boobs. And when Morpho tears off her shirt and squeezes her boobs like two or three times, it cuts to him waking up in bed, like almost he knew his girlfriend was being, or his fiance was being, uh, was with somebody else or being attacked. So he subconsciously woke up and then decided to read her note, which was kind of interesting. It was funny. I was like, Oh, I wonder the little thing there was that. So, um, but yeah, I know it's, uh, I definitely dug it. Um, it's cool. Cause I'd always seen this film a lot, like, uh, the box and stuff in the video stores back in the day when I was a kid and teenager and that and never really watched it until, uh, maybe my thirties or whatever, but, uh, it's always famous for Morpho. Like that's a good creature. And I was watching it again, like I said, for about the third time now. And, uh, you know, it's like a basic Frankenstein monster or like a, a zombie character, you know, before zombies, you know, and, uh, just a, a mute servant that's, I guess alive, but he's blind. And it's cool that he's controlled by these like sounds that he hears, which is just a cheap overdubbing deal. And, and we'll go over that with a list on the sound effects. But, uh, yeah, it's it's a good creative idea, and uh, the castles, uh, the mad scientist character of Orloff and the Morpho, uh, and the look of the film, those are the, the huge things that really made it stand out, even to somebody who was a novice or just wondering what it was. The, the Morpho is a strong thing. If you didn't have Morpho, this, this film wouldn't be as iconic as it was, and uh, it's funny how that's kind of passed over as uh, such a strong... Uh, monster character type deal so all right so uh now i'm gonna hit this film and go over uh the franco checklist that i always do checking off who's naughty or nice on the franco checklist of um 
deals we see over and over again in the Franco universe. Uh, not the Marvel universe, but the early universe, the Franco universe, uh, where a lot of characters and films and things take place, And uh, as we see. Number one, body of water. Yes, we have uh, the pond, basically, is the body of water. And then we have the... the um, the uh, lake around the castle where they take the rowboat, and uh, we have a few of those, which leads to uh, sailboat and boats. We see boat rowboats mostly. I don't think there's a sailboat in this, but there's uh, rowboats. Um, palm trees. I don't think I've seen any palm trees in this. We have a lot of palm trees in uh, the next film, Death Whistles the Blues, but uh, not in this one. I don't think I have that on my checklist, actually. Yeah, okay. No, no palm trees I didn't catch. Uh, five jungle sound effects. No jungle sound effects, but this has sound effects. Uh, owl and birds, and uh, of course the beeping and the difference, uh, like almost like a slide whistle sound for the sounds in Morpho's uh, head. I guess we don't see Orpho, or we don't see Orloff uh, with like a control panel, like controlling them or anything. But we just hear those sounds, so I guess it's almost like what we don't see. Uh, anything in full, our brain fills in the missing pieces. Like how if you only see a arm of a monster, you kind of fill in the rest of what you think it looks like. So I think when we hear the sounds, we know he's being controlled, even though we don't see it. We just assume that. So it's another cheap uh, filmmaking trick there, you know, to establish something or to suggest something without having to show it or establish it. So that's cool. Uh, okay, uh, number six, chained up person. Yes, Morpho chains up one of the, uh, women he kidnaps, um, the one that has her face disfigured, um, I think she's wearing a top or topless, I'm not sure, but he has her arms chained up on these dual chains in this little, like, attic room. Uh, number seven, dance scenes on stage, stripping. Well, partial, yeah, you have the dance scenes on stage, but non-stripping, um, the dancers and that going through the deal. Uh, eight club scenes, dancing. Uh, I don't think I found that. Oh, yeah, no, I mean, they have the people hanging out drinking and stuff, but not really dancing. Um, just the people just frolicking together. So I, I guess uh, maybe partial on that. Uh, number nine, jazz music. Um, maybe one or two, but not that much. It's all like more um, uh, bar music and like kind of just uh, traditional music, I guess, and, and more... Um, folk music or whatever and, and some other strange kind of sounds and other different... I mean, it's really cool music, but it's not as much jazz unless it's like experimental jazz or whatever. Uh, number 10 and 11, excessive zooms and out-of-focus shots. Not really on this one. Uh, he's, he's still doing the uh, measured shots and dollies and those things like that. So he's got a little bit of a budget, so he's, he's not rushing through things. Uh, number 12, mirror shots. Yes, there's some very cool mirror shots in this. Uh, let's see which one I had written down here. Number 12, mirror shot. Uh, do, 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 do. Hmm. Maybe nothing caught my eye on this, but there is a few um, where, like, you see him. Well, actually, no, let me think now. I think about it. Uh, no, there is, because she sees a mirror shot when he's getting ready to poison her drink, and uh, she sees in the mirror that the, the the potion going in yeah so there's definitely that and that's funny i didn't have that written down on my list but uh yeah no, most, most definitely um okay uh and number 13 mind control theme yes um we have fear or desire so my mind always goes to that part when it comes to this fear or desire well i'd say this is about desire he desires his daughter's face to be fixed and his desire um you know, leads him to be controlled, and 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 uh, mind control definitely. He controls Morpho's mind with the with the things he implanted in him, and uh, does that deal. Uh, number fourteen, magic tongue scenes. Once again, no Lena, no tongue. So no magic tongue, no Lena. Uh, let's see, fifteen, red light, a black and white movie. So I have no idea. Sixteen, sheepskin rug. That'd be a negative. And masturbation, no masturbation in this film. Uh, 17, Mad Scientist. Well, the title is The Awful Dr. Orloff, and that should tell you enough, so yes. Definitely yes. 18, Fish Tank Shots. No. 19, Talking Parrot or Talking Animals. No. 20, End Credits. Yes or no? Uh, I believe yes. I don't have it written down, but I'm almost sure there is. Um, number 1, Handwritten Sign. Yes. 
the lipstick uh, note and of course the lipstick on the mirror and um, yeah those those two deals so you have those handwritten notes um, 22 spiral staircase I don't think I caught that actually I don't think there is one in here um, so yeah I didn't catch that 23 inept cops oh yeah most definitely uh, takes the drunk Jeannot to basically fill in all the pieces the other cop doesn't really hear him Tanner helps him a little bit and they go over things and stuff but uh yeah, it's funny um, why, you know, uh, it shows that. It's like, and then he decides to basically read the note when he's woken out of bed and just like, oh, yeah, maybe i got to read this note that I've had for hours, where if he would have read it right away, he would have saved the woman and there would have been all that situation. But it's just by stroke of luck that he happened to, you know. So, yeah, definitely inept cops, most definitely. Uh, 24 belly chains, no. And 25 kinks. Um, yeah, there's there's some kinks in this. Uh, there's necrophilia. There's, um, let's see, there's whipping. There's uh, chaining up people. Yeah, there's, there's a few in here. Uh, but not too much. Not into the later jungles and uh, voyages of the uh, ship SS Franco. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, yeah, this is definitely a good film. And uh, it's a film, any horror film fan should see or has has shun seen by now because uh, it's definitely one of the essential like uh, you know films that you should watch of different uh, categories and different uh, you know regions and all that stuff it's it's not the first Spanish they, they call it the first Spanish horror film but it, technically it's not but it's the first big Spanish horror film um, and um, Frank always claims that uh the Lessons of Visage, Eyes Without a Face, uh, had no influence on it. It was made at the same time in a different region, but as time goes by and you look at the evidence, that's kind of bullshit. And probably Franco saw it and cribbed the idea off it and then did it later on too in Faceless a little bit as homage to this um, years later. And of course he did many riffs on this film throughout his career. did many other Orloff films and other surgery films, Matt Doctor films, and, and uh, a lot of pieces of this. Of course, Jack the Ripper and a lot of other stuff take from this film and stuff. So it's definitely one of the key building blocks that you build the Franco house on is this film. So, yeah, definitely worth a watch. And uh, it's good. Check it out if you haven't seen it yet. Um, I got the Blu-ray of it, uh, but there's that cool new Kino Cult channel and they got like usually about like ten or fifteen Franco, or maybe about eight to twelve Franco films on their station, always for free, which is awesome. You should check it out if you uh, want to see it and don't have the money or ability to get the Blu-rays. Definitely check it out. It's a free channel, uh, and commercials aren't too bad. Only like every fifteen minutes or something, but uh, for like two minutes or whatever. But yeah, I watched. Um, what did I watch on there? I watched. Um, uh, even though I have all the stuff, I forgot what I watched on there recently. Oh, my mind's going bad. But, yeah, no, it was uh, Nightmare's Coming Night, I think it was. Anyway, so, yeah, it's uh, I wanted to check out that channel, and uh, it's definitely cool. No, I'm sorry, I watched uh, Scavenger Hunt. I watched a non-Franco film. But I'm definitely checking out the Franco films because I got them all on Blu-ray, so uh, why watch a uh, channel if you already got them there? But I did look at the uh, quality in that, and they look really good. And uh, it's awesome to have the Franco films there for everybody to see. And from what I've been told, uh, it's... Uh, worldwide station, so it's not just a North America deal. So, so yeah, check it out. Uh, give that free plug to the Kino Cult channel. It's on uh, Amazon Fire Stick and might be on Roku. Uh, and they definitely have the website too. You can do it online, watch it there. All right, uh, like I told in the top half, I'll tell in the bottom half. Uh, download and subscribe to the episodes. We're on all your favorite listening platforms. Tell a friend. Tell people about the Franco Observer podcast. I would appreciate it. Uh, word of mouth uh, always helps. And it's nice to always build the Franco fan universe. So let's uh, get the numbers up and uh, keep putting these out once a week. Come rain or shine. Uh, come job. Come friends. Come whatever the situation is. Uh, I'm going to try to always knock them out at least once a week. So stay on path. Stay on schedule. That's what I like to do. Um, if you want everyone to get a reach of us, get a hold of us, uh, you can do so at our web uh, email address is francoobserver, uh, one word, at yahoo.com. That's francoobserver at yahoo.com. 
Uh, you can also find us on Facebook or Instagram. We got pages there uh, that you can get a hold of us at. Um, all that good stuff. So, all right, yeah, like I said, you can find this on Blu-ray and on the uh, Kino Cult channel. So, this was episode seventy, film number five, the awful Doctor Orloff, also known as Screams in the Night. So yeah, I think Awful Dr. Orloff is a stronger title because Screams in the Night is kind of passe. It's in history. Retrospect, it's good that he stuck with Awful Dr. Orloff or even Horrible Dr. Orloff. But yeah, and this only had one F, but the other ones had two. We'll, we'll go into that when the time comes. So, Buenas noches. Mm-hmm.